Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying, kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. Episode 64 of Americans Watching the Footy. Perfect squares are cool, so hopefully this episode is too. I am Benjamin Castle, alongside my brother Ethan, here in South San Francisco, California. This is going to be a pretty news-heavy episode. There's a lot going on on player movement, even with four teams still playing. Kind of fun, just getting used to how this whole timeline works, and fun to be a fan of one of the teams that's still playing and in turn hasn't reached out. Two impending free agents and trade targets, even though they have been linked to a couple, they just haven't really done anything yet because they're they kind of have more immediate matters to attend to. I was just about to say, even though Geelong do remain linked to a couple pieces in particular, we went over those in our most recent episode mentioning that Tanner Brune was eyeing Geelong, but now he's made it official that he's nominated Geelong as his destination of choice, a former Geelong Falcon grew up in the area, and then Ollie Henry, brother of Jack. But this trade period does not revolve around Geelong. It revolves around the West, particularly Fremantle. Well, we expect this player to go to Fremantle, but the first domino has finally officially fallen, and Luke Jackson has submitted his request to be traded home to the West. Note that he did not nominate Fremantle, but... They remain frontrunners, and it's going to be very difficult for the Eagles to part with pick two. Yeah, him not specifically going and saying Fremantle makes me think he's basically saying, I'd prefer to go to the Dockers, but if all else fails, I'd be fine with going to the Eagles. Fremantle probably will have more to offer in terms of a bidding war. The Eagles have given up a lot of picks in recent years, and they actually may have to go through the AFL with a request to trade another first-round pick. But also, the Dockers are likely to have cap space if other trades occur first, because a number of their players will soon submit requests. Those are likely to happen around time of exit interviews, which will be in the next few days probably, beginning with Rory Lobb likely requesting a trade to the Bulldogs. We know Blake Akers wants Carlton. Griffin Logue has been linked to North among other teams. But if the Jackson trade is delayed, then I'd expect it is because Frio are getting the space they need to pay him adequately. While also looking at players like Jeremy Sharp to complete their wing. Sharp is a player I haven't been super sure of at the Suns. I've liked him at times this year. But I don't know, maybe a change of scenery could do him some good. And he is from Fremantle, as is Luke Jackson. Here's an interesting wrinkle. As it stands, the Dockers will not be entertaining Lobb's trade request. Now, what does that mean for everything? I bet he gets the trade eventually, but 
they can do this to kind of jack up the price and show, hey, we have leverage. We don't have to move him. We can hold on to him. Junior Rioli has officially requested a trade to Port Adelaide, and West Coast put out a super butthurt statement that only reminds me of the Dan Gilbert letter after LeBron left for Miami. Only difference is the Eagle statement is in like the same font that's used for just about every AFL website, as opposed to the Dan Gilbert letter, which was in Comic Sans and included the bold statement in quotes, by the way, because it goes, in the meantime, I want to make one statement to you tonight. And then in quotes and all caps and bold, I personally guarantee that the Cleveland Cavaliers will win an NBA championship before the self-titled former King wins one. Well, they won one together. Almost as good as the sign held up during the 2016 finals. I'm not sure which game the sign, and it's funny by itself, but when you see all the different fonts used and different colors of text and everything, it makes it way better. It's LeBron, LeBron in bold, dot, 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 take the quotes in bold, high road, back to, and then we go to all uppercase, Cleveland with your second, although the ND in second is lowercase, you're losing to the GSW. You are no longer known as quotes bold, text changes from blue to black, King James, back to blue, dash. You are now back to black, bold, and caps, loser, crybaby, James. That was also in quotation marks. And then we go to italicized parentheses in red with your feelings, quote, hurt, unquote, close parentheses. You spent that long describing a sign. I think about this a lot. As much as we think about the Warriors blowing a 3-1 lead. I I love one of the Reddit comments here. It's actually really clever. LeBron will get a 24-second violation when he takes the ball off the court and then stop to try and read it. We'll actually be using Reddit a bit more in this in our post-mortems because I sourced some comments from the various r slash AFL subreddits again. But going back to Junior Rioli, it's been expected now. And I think the most difficult part about it for Eagles brass is how much they supported him through his suspension and maybe also the loss of his father this past year factoring into things. But this just feels like a really badly worded statement, leaving out any possibility of getting a good result out of this at all, like eliminating the possibility of ending this relationship with Junior on good terms in any way whatsoever when he's been a premiership player for you. And an important part of that, he got the shepherd on Braden Maynard that led to Dom Sheed marking. Even if it may not have been legal, I don't care. It's okay. It's not like you have to worry about keeping up good relations with the Rioli family. It's not like they're one of the most important families in football. Surely this will have no repercussions down the road. What I really do hope is that Port Adelaide plays at West Coast, maybe round one next year. That would be great. And Junior scores, like, six. I don't care how he does, because it would be great drama whether he has a great or terrible game. I mean, I think this would be a great scheduling opportunity. You heard it here first. Port Adelaide at West Coast round one. Make it happen. Maybe in one of our off-season episodes, we should fashion our ideal round one or, like, opening round schedule. Realistically, I wouldn't be surprised if Port Adelaide opens at home because... The last couple of years, the Crows have had round one at home. But yeah, I'm really pulling for the concept of Port Adelaide at West Coast. 
it would probably be the last game of round one because, you know, got to end every round in, in the West, but that would be awesome. That's a game that I'm really looking forward to. And I really hope the schedule makers don't fuck us and leave Rioli only playing against the Eagles at home. I love the idea of him returning to Optus. I Against the Eagles in particular. Against Fremantle, it would be like, maybe a few Eagles fans would show up to boo him, but the opportunities for drama here are way too good. But just remember, the Eagles have to travel to the Gabba. Brisbane must never play them at Optus. Fucking stupid. Five years, and I bet it's going to be six. As for what the Eagles seek out of this, they want Mitch Georgiatis, a Western native, and I doubt they're going to have the leverage to get that done. I don't know, because he seems like he isn't thought of super highly. He was in and out of the lineup, so it's possible. And frankly, I think going to a place like West Coast where he could play every week and not have to worry about someone breathing down his neck for his spot would be great for him and give him an opportunity to really cement himself in a stable role and also prove that he can play and succeed without just leaning on Charlie Dixon the entire time. I'd like to see him be able to be a more independent player like that. But who knows, maybe he'll just end up leaning on Oscar Allen, who I am super excited to see back for 2023. It's clear how much the Eagles suffered without him and how much they'll need another key forward and potential second ruck between Kennedy retiring, Natanui being near the end of his career, which does also add to the allure of getting Luke Jackson because he'd be first ruck right away, though. Fremantle are floating, having him kind of as this roving ruck mid-roll. Well, he has shown an ability to play all over the ground, but I think you know if you could ask him to do a lot of the stuff Natanui does, although he's not taking such creative angles on the center bounces, but the kind of, you know, hey, play all over. I think that could go well because he's an active player who's not just going to hang out in center circle. And he didn't blow me away in any one area in particular this year other than a couple games where he was ruck dominant. Early in the season, mainly. A couple times against Brisbane as well, he got the better of Big O with the kind of finesse side of his game. And that did open up some avenues for Max Gone. Of course, Melbourne are now looking to get Brody Grundy. And I don't know, just seems like a weird fit trying to fit him and Gone together. Maybe it means more forward time for Grundy because he's a better finisher than Gone's been. I would have thought Hawthorne would be the sort of team that should really be going after Grundy. With Ben McAvoy gone, with Reeves looking more suitable in a half forward spot, as weird as it sounds, I would almost want to see Carlton making a push for it. One, just for the hell of it. And two, because I don't know what Pitnet's future's like. There's finally a time where more ruck spots have opened up for a lot of the players that we thought deserve a chance to have a starring role. Who knows where Lloyd Meek fits into things. He's been floated to be potentially going to the Giants, as we mentioned last time. There's kind of a carousel here, kind of like you get with goalies in the NHL or backup quarterbacks in the NFL, backup catchers in baseball sometimes, NHL head coaches. The NHL has got to have more retread head coaches than any other league. But back to the Hawthorne idea, I think it would also work really well because Grundy's more of a veteran, could impart some knowledge on guys like Reeves and Lynch. I think that makes too much sense. Moving on, Ben Long has requested a trade to the Gold Coast Suns despite having had an offer from St. Kilda to stick around for a decent chunk of time now. Long has been in and out of the group. I believe he got 15 games in this year, is that right? Actually, Long 
played 19 games this year while he was named for 19, was a medical sub, unused for one, and was elevated in-game three times. So, yeah, 15 in the 22, so go me. Which game was it where he was so good as the medical sub? It was one of the later round games. Uh, was it against the Bulldogs, round 18, in the loss? It might have been later than that, even. That was the last time he was a medical sub. Must have been that one, then. I remember him really thriving in that role, and maybe that's kind of what the Suns envisioned being able to do with him? Yeah, that they were a team that wasn't especially creative with the medical sub role. It was just kind of... Here's our next best guy. And Log is a player that can be somewhat versatile, kind of half back to half forward. An okay shot at goal this year. Hadn't been his strongest suit the past couple, but kicked 8-6 in 2022. You know, I just think from a playing time standpoint, probably not the wisest move for him because the Suns are linked to so many people that if you're looking for regular playing time... Such a crowded lineup is probably not where you're going to get it. From the Saints end of things, maybe this will help them build up a good rapport with the Suns administration because you know that time will come when Ben King will want to go home and play with his brother, I think. Hopefully the Suns build into something where Ben really wants to stick around and I hope to see him in that sort of running half forward role again because the tall situation between Chole and Casabolt has opened up a lot of opportunities for Ben. Stand by me. To round out the player news here, two father-sons from two different clubs have each received two-year extensions, Bailey Scott of North and Riley West from the Bulldogs. Scott, I noticed more and more as the year got on, seemed to be fitting into that group a bit better. And West had had a couple games in particular where he was strong. He kicked 3-3 against Hawthorne round 15, actually kicked multiple goals in four games out of a five-game stretch, round 11, then they had the bye round 13, 14, 15, 16, kicked seven of his nine goals for, of the season within that stretch, and did all right for himself in that Melbourne win as well, round 19. A goal from only 11 touches and was impactful in terms of pressure. He'd be a guy that I could totally get behind, you know, the idea of next year he's going to really cement himself on a higher level than he has to this point. Maybe that's what they're thinking as well. And times are definitely changing for the Bulldogs between likely getting Rory Lobb and also their head of coaching and operations manager, Chris Maple, resigning. He was Luke Beveridge's right-hand man, basically. And we've had our questions about Beveridge these past couple years does this open the door for 2023 to be a referendum on beverages coaching? I think that's possible. I just have one request for the Bulldogs. No matter what changes you make, don't let Gary Zimmerman go anywhere. A couple days before West signed on, there were a couple Bulldogs fans in the post I made on their subreddit that were concerned about the fact that he hadn't re-signed, but, but that's happened. He was known as having a good season, as well as Ed Richards and Tom Libertori pretty unanimously. I don't know how Libertori wasn't in the All-Australian 44. The bigger questions for Bulldogs fans seems to be, where does Aaron Naughton fit into things? Multiple in this thread suggested that he be moved to center half back if Lobb comes in. Maybe he can be a sort of Griffin Logue type swingman with maybe better skills than Logue. Well, I think Naughton's offensive upside really necessitates keeping him towards the forward 50. So I would not recommend yanking him around. 
The other question is, where does Sam Darcy fit into things long term? Is he a forward? Is he a guy that moves around? More and more Bulldogs fans have been inclined to think he belongs in the forward group long term. His performances there so far have looked pretty good. It's just a matter of how do you fit everyone? And what I think you could do, and I'm just brainstorming on the spot here. Go ahead. Why not? Move Bottom Pelly out of such a forward role because it's just not needed. And let Tim English do some more defensive work as well. Having Lob there could definitely open that up for him to have Lob as a potential Ruckman up the ground. And English is just such a solid handball throughout the ground as well that I love what he does on the run. The only one defender that has been solid for the Dogs most of the year in terms of tall backs is, I guess, Alex Keith, even though he was yanked around a bit. Hopefully Buku grows into that role as well. And Keith's already 30, so I don't know how much longer this is going to go on for him. I think over time, Thomas could and probably should usurp that role. Just remember, Alex Keith played cricket. Not as important as Mark Blitzov's having been a steeplechaser, or Tom Fullerton having played basketball, but relevant. As for the Richmond subreddit, by the way, the reception of this season was largely positive from Tigers fans in that they got experience into the younger group, they didn't have a second setback year in a row. They couldn't win those close games. That was a big thing that kept hanging them up. But otherwise, a pretty positive outlook, even with the surprise elimination loss. Again, I think that's going to be kind of a one-off thing for Richmond this year with their inability to grind out the wins. I said when we eulogized them, win one of your first couple close games next year and put it, and you can put it behind you. It's time to figure out what Richmond's midfield of the future looks like, though, because Dusty and Cochin can't have all that much time left. Shane Edwards and Kane Lambert have retired. Shea Bolton can't carry him alone, especially because he belongs in the forward third so much of the time. I think it's going to take another couple years for Richmond to really figure out how that middle six is going to look. Tyler Sonzi and Jack Ross will get into the game more. Hugo Ralph Smith needs more experience and maybe a more consistent spot. A lot of these points made by a couple Reddit users, including Technical Gold 5772 so thanks for the input there, guys. Oh yeah, and also Dion Presti is 29. 29 with hamstring issues. And he's going to be as hard to replace as anyone. Somehow he's never been an All-Australian? I don't know how you can piece that together. During this recording session, we got news that James Hurd has been interviewed for the Essendon job again. So here we go in that regard. And this has been reported by more people than just Tom Brown. So I want to think it's actually legit. It almost feels like a joke, but at this point, I almost think he's the frontrunner by default. I mean, we've had a pretty constant parade of people saying they're not interested in the job. And I don't blame anyone who's not interested with the way things ended for Ben Rutten. Brendan Late is also in the mix, the St. Kilda assistant who got a crack as a caretaker this year. And, of course, he succeeded because caretakers almost entirely did. I want to approach this last point, which is more of a football-adjacent point rather than directly related to football with as much cultural sensitivity as possible. So I know that a lot of times in Aboriginal communities, it's taboo to say the name of a recently deceased person. I looked it up because, you know, you see in articles sometimes, like as a warning to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, that, you know, the article contains the name of a recently deceased person. Or the image of a recently deceased person. So 
the reasoning for that is that in a lot of Aboriginal communities, you know, it's believed that saying the name of a recently deceased person will, you know, kind of pull them back and prevent them from passing on into their next stage to kind of paraphrase things. But within the articles I've seen, the family has given permission for people to use the name of the recently deceased in this case, someone who neither of us had ever heard of until just a couple weeks ago and instantly became pretty impressed by and just a topic of fascination with his cultural impact and the fact that he was willing to do stuff like this for the AFL and had appreciation for the indigenous role in the game. And someone who I didn't realize was really a face of the stolen generations. Uncle Jack Charles passed away after a stroke at the age of 79. A singer, artist, craftsman, LGBT icon, you name it, storyteller. One of the more culturally relevant Aboriginal elders and someone who I wish we had learned about sooner. When I saw the clip from Yokai Footy, it was like, who's the badass guy with the awesome voice and beard? I had already seen him doing the other finals advertisement and had found him then. And then I saw him again and was impressed by just how much time they gave him and how much he just quickly got into it. Yes, he's an actor, but you could tell there was real love and appreciation for the game at that moment. One of the cool things that's come from learning about footy is learning more about Aboriginal communities in Australia, both kind of the, you know, the cool side of it, the, you know, some of the folklore, some of the traditions, the concept, you know, dream time, things like what a smoking ceremony is, what a welcome to country is, as well as learning some of the harsher realities of some of the problems that the communities face. You know, if you're, you know, the contemporary American, their knowledge of Aboriginal Australia is didgeridoos and boomerangs. I had also heard of and knew a little bit about like the white Australia policies because of the 1968 Olympics. Peter Norman's the name. He wore a badge to support the two Americans, Tommy Smith and John Carlos, who I actually saw this past summer because they were guests at the World Athletics Championships in Eugene, Oregon, where I interacted with a whole lot of Australian athletes and coaches because they were interested in why the hell an American had a West Coast Eagles hat. By the way, there is a statue at San Jose State of Tommy Smith and John Carlos. The space occupied by Peter Norman is left open so that, you know, you can, people can take photos there. On the official description on the San Jose State website, the absence of Peter Norman is a reminder that all people have a responsibility to stand up against intolerance and bigotry, but it also provides an opportunity, you know, to take a photo with it. But that was really the only reason I even knew anything about the white Australia policies. And... Like I said, it's really cool to have learned about all of the different aspects of Aboriginal communities in Australia. And I know we're still just barely scraping the tip of the iceberg, but it's been really neat and informative. And I just wish every community, every ethnic background had someone like Jack Charles, who, you know, he was firm in his beliefs and was very active in social causes, but also was able to showcase the arts and blend everything in such a cool, informative, and positive way when, frankly, he and really every Aboriginal Australian, if they wanted to, have more than enough reason to be super angry at the government and the country altogether. 
And it's just a reminder to us that even though Australia, until not that long ago, was severely lagging behind in, you know, indigenous relations, how much ground has been made up quickly and that we in the United States have a lot of work to do in that regard. And it can be done because Australia came from far worse to far better very quickly. And I just, like I said, I hope every community has someone like Jack Charles who shows off all the cool aspects, you know, the cultural artifacts, both tangible and intangible, and can just kind of put everything in a cool light that helps bridge gaps and welcome people in. He did way more than was ever asked of him. I've started looking up more about the kind of work he did mentoring Aboriginal youths in the prison system, along with Uncle Archie Roach, whose family seems to have also granted permission for the use of his name and images in certain media. And those are sorts of figures that are definitely lacking in the United States for all sorts of minority groups. And the indigenous communities would be a fantastic way to start because a lot of the communities here in the United States and in North America suffer from similar issues. Those often transcend international boundaries and oceans because of the way those groups have been treated by European settlers. Addiction, incarceration rates, unemployment. Heck, some of that stuff you can look at even on the European continent with some of the Roma populations, although that's got some of its own unique aspects. But certainly, Uncle Jack reminds us of what kind of figures the most impactful individuals of any group can be, particularly minority groups. I don't know if I've ever grown so attached to someone that I'd never heard of two weeks before their passing, which is what an awesome guy. Getting back into more direct footy conversation, I had done a little bit to go and circle back to the postmortems we did a couple episodes ago in episode 62 for Richmond and the Bulldogs through the Reddit threads that I put out after that. And now it's time to move on to the postmortems for the two teams that lost in the semifinals. And we'll go chronologically once again. I did not expect to be doing this postmortem so quickly. I thought it might be after a prelim. But reality struck swiftly come finals time for Melbourne, who, despite finishing second this year, had some problems that ran through the entire campaign. We could tell from the beginning that they weren't as team-oriented, perhaps, weren't as cohesive as strong in terms of transitioning throughout the ground as they were last year. And we could understand why they had the struggles they did against teams that were close to their level, if not above them. The Ds went 10-0 against teams that didn't crack the eight and 6-6 six and six in the home and away against finalists. They thus finished 16-6. and six. They were in second on percentage at 130.5, helped a lot by their two routes of the Brisbane Lions, who then just three weeks after being doubled up by Melbourne at the GABA, ended their season at the G with a loss to the Swans in between. If we're unpacking where did things go wrong for the Demons, the easy thing to do would be to point at the May Melksham stuff. I'm going to look at this more from the actual football side of things and look at what got in the way of them repeating. And first off, I talked about this a bit in our semifinals recap. It's really hard to repeat. It's hard to repeat in any sport. You're playing more games than anybody. Almost anybody if a non-top four team cracks. Similarly, that's one of the things that got in the Bulldogs' way. They played a lot of games last year, too. But my other thing with the Demons is, you know, their main, 
22 plus injury stuff. I'd say they're mean, like their first 25 or so guys, if everyone's healthy, pretty good. Really good. Maybe the absolute best. But there's a pretty significant drop off after that. Even with the strength that the KC Demons have, I guess. And KC are in the VFL Grand Final against Southport coming up on Sunday. Yeah, maybe it's just guys that aren't accustomed to AFL level and that's where the gap comes in. Maybe there just weren't enough opportunities to work some of those guys in. It was a question that you had when it came to Jamar Hagen at the Bulldogs. And thankfully, Jamara's gotten that opportunity there and has begun to thrive. But for example, no Jacob Van Rurian this year at all. He's someone for whom Melbourne fans were clamoring during a lot of the late season struggles. And I also want to mention that the May Melcham incident happened after Melbourne's first couple losses. So no, the problems didn't start there at all. The other thing with the VFL guys, maybe it's a little bit like the Crows situation where it's like they put up these great stats, but against what competition? And the Crows made it to a prelim in the Sandful. They were beaten there by Norwood. The Sandful Grand Finals coming up on Sunday as well. That's North Adelaide and Norwood. The Waffle Grand Final isn't actually until after the AFL Grand Final. We've still got the semifinals coming up this week. What I'm getting at, though, with the talk of some of these, you know, state league finals and stuff, even though the round's going to be done by Sunday, there's still a lot of funny stuff to come Sunday between Sandful Final, VFL Final, Brownlow Night. Which, again, was moved up by a day so as not to conflict with the Queen's Funeral. And who knows what's going to happen on Brownlow Night. This is the first wide-open race in our three years watching. Back to the actual Demons discussion, though. You know, when you had Stephen May, Jake Lever, and Christian Salem all playing together, it looked pretty good. Well, Salem missed a lot of time at the start of the season from injury. Missed rounds 2 through 11 and 23. Hurt. But May and Lever, I've said it all year, they are better when they play together. As strong as May is in marking, he's best on the ground and lever in the air. They complement each other exceedingly well, and I didn't grasp that as much last year with my focus being on how Melbourne's forward line were actually converting, how a couple players in the midfield were shaping everything. This year, looking at Melbourne's midfield, I began to understand the value of Jack Viney and Charlie Spargo much more. Clayton Oliver and Christian Petraka were guarded as closely as ever, especially Oliver. And Viney ended up being really important in terms of getting the ball out of center. And Sparko had a lot of right place, right time moments. But looking forward for them, other than Bailey Fritch, who else consistently converted for them? Kazi could be brilliant. Mason Cox will tell you that regularly. But dribblers, I mean, I'm going to default to old Jason Dunstow clips with those. And anyone who's followed the footy for longer than we have will probably instantly get that. And then where was anything else? Because Max Gaughan was inaccurate. Ben Brown and Sam Wiedemann both looked just done most of the time. Brown was instrumental last year. Brown ended up with 30 goals this year, but those often came in spurts and he had, there wasn't any week in, week out thing that worked for him. And then Wiedemann, I know a lot of people had expected more out of him this year. And in limited time, I didn't see it outside of a couple games. 4-3 against early season Essendon, could kind of wipe that off. 3 against Richmond round 6, and again against the Bulldogs round 19. But again, no consistency there. And he's 25 now. And Brown's going to be 30 by the time next season begins. You know, I'm going to just segue from there into our discussion over pleasant surprises and disappointments, because my disappointment for Melbourne is 
Sam Brown, Ben Wiedemann, Sam Wiedebrown, Ben Brownman. Sam Brownerman. The combination of the two, you know, it's not like they were really platooning with each other. It was just one would play, then they'd have a shitty week and get omitted for the other. Or Brown could get suspended for a really dirty act in the VFL and somehow still be kind of let off easy for it. But there were opportunities for each of them to really take charge, and it never happened. There were a couple of moments for Brown that were interesting where they kind of had him playing along the wing, which I thought was a really neat use of his skill set. I mean, we know he can run. We've seen it usually with the world's longest run up to goal. As I call it, the Chariots of Fire run. I had hoped to see more of that from him, and it just didn't happen. Wings are usually smaller, so... If you have a guy like him on the wing, that could be a real matchup problem. It's like how Mason Cox can sometimes mark along the wing as well. I thought that Brown could kind of have that use. Your move, Simon Goodwin. You know, this actually has me thinking now. What about other taller guys you can play on the wing? Maybe like Buku Kamas. He's one of those play everywhere type of guys. I'd love to see that too. In terms of disappointments for me, Jake Bowie just didn't stick long term like I had expected him to start doing. Looks strong again. Early in the year, picked up his second Rising Star nomination in round two in a 34 disposal performance against Gold Coast. But after that, didn't really look like he had the same footing as he did in his first seven games the previous year. Was omitted after round 17, only coming back in once due to Christian Salem's injury. I'm not sure where he fits into things. He's got this halfback and midfield ability in terms of ball movement. I'm questioning some of his marking, but he's going to need to be called on again. Ethan, you went first with your negative, so how about you go first with the positive as well? Who's the one Melbourne player that surprised you in the best way this season? It's going to be two, just like I had two negatives. It's the Spars. Charlie Spargo and Tom Sparrow? Yeah, you know, Sparrow, like the best pizza place in New York. And I'm going to go get me a New York slice. Sparrow was... One of the less discussed parts of that midfield group, kind of in a offensive midfield role. And Spargo, I mean, took some insane marks and could earn the mark of the year, probably earned our votes, as we discussed a few rounds ago now. And just a consistent, good player. Sparrow has a knack for these long running goals, I remember. I think I first noticed that in the grand final and saw it a few times this year as well. Spargo, I had begun to understood his importance last year. For some reason, it didn't click how strong Harrison Petty was in a lot of this season because he's another one of those guys that completes the defensive ranks. And after what he did in the final minutes against Brisbane, I want to see him having some more forward time. Maybe that's part of their tall forward solution because he had a couple stoppage clearances. He managed a goal. I've never questioned his kicking accuracy. I think I mentioned you could kind of do it in that Jack Henry type role where it's like, Your main job is still defense, but when we need forward help, you're the guy. He had spent some forward time in 2019 and kicked 6-5 from that. Maybe it's time to see that again. Petty's the main one for me, but I want to take some time to mention how Jaden Hunt really impressed me in the last few rounds in particular. I noticed him in spots all year, but just pinpointing how where I'd expected Bowie to excel in kicking from halfback, it was Hunt that did much, much more impactful work in kind of a similar role, but on the ground, handballing from halfback. When Melbourne got their shit together against Carlton, round 22, 
and ended up winning that game. Hunt was a big reason why with how he started their passages. And when it comes to the midfield, just one more thing before we move on, where does Angus Brayshaw fit into things long term? Because he's one of the strongest marks in the game at halfback, but offers so much as that sort of spare mid almost at times. And look what he can do when he gets room to run. He and his brother both. It's kind of an odd group of pieces right now in that they haven't quite found the way to fit them all together. And honestly, maybe trading Jackson and whatever pieces they bring in can help kind of complement those guys because this team has no shortage of talent. It's just how can they get all the pieces to kind of fit together harmoniously. And one of the issues is that it's kind of the anti-Richmond, other than Patty's ability to go forward a bit, and Brayshaw, I'd say. It's like, here's your forwards, here's your mids, here's your defensemen. And it's the forwards with which there's the biggest issue, the most upvoted comment on my Reddit thread about Melbourne from Minion underscore Opinion, who has a David Roden flair, and I love it, says that Brown and Wiedemann have the contested strength of a wet noodle. It's wild because Brown is a big, strong guy, and I hate saying anything negative about a guy who was you know, the second player we became familiar with, only preceded by... Thanks, Pickett Palace. But yeah, he underwhelmed this year. I wouldn't be surprised if the D's do a little tweaking this offseason, move Jackson, bring in some pieces that can really help round them out and reload and really go for it next year with like an all-in type of season. You know, there's one other player that can move between forward and defense for Melbourne who we forgot about before this because, well... We didn't see him in a loss this year. Tom McDonald suffered a Liz Frank fracture in training between rounds 10 and 11. And despite maybe putting his hand up for the finals, maybe was not heard from again. An accurate kicker over the course of his career, averaging decently over 60% for his set shots. Maybe he was a missing piece more than we realized during the course of everything. A couple Redditors pointed out the importance of McDonald's injury. Devious 730 mentioned that Melbourne's coaching group asked their forwards of taking pack marks on too regular of a basis. And I noticed that a lot this year. There's just bombing kicks into the forward 50 a lot of the time. And especially after McDonald, they lacked the pieces to compete nearly enough. Bailey Fritch is really good at getting to open space to take marks, but he's not a guy I expect to take hangers over people. And you don't expect Charlie Spargo to turn in nominees every week. He's more likely than his teammates, but compared to the rest of the league, yeah. DVS730 actually had a bit of a knock on Spargo, saying that he had significantly less impact this season, as did Sparrow. Maybe I just didn't notice them before. I I don't know, but a lot of it for me was also that, you know, watching them last year was like, oh my god, Petraka, God, Oliver, and like, nobody else ever really got much thought. This was a year where we definitely began to understand Melbourne a lot more, especially once we actually put their flaws under the microscope more as they started losing. Unless you're a first-time listener, you probably already know where to find us. On Twitter, at Americans Footy. You can find me individually at Castle Media. You can find me individually at BenjaminHK01. And you can find Ethan's cat, Brian, under Ethan's bed right now. He's been... Very quiet thus far. Hopefully that continues for the duration of this recording. You can also find him on Instagram at catnamedgrian. 
I think he sometimes gets fooled when I come home because of how similar our voices are. I don't think our voices are that similar. I don't know. Dad is convinced at this point, and I wonder how difficult it is for Australians to tell our voices apart when you add in the American accent barrier. That's why we've been using our names a bit more in recent times. So on that note, Ethan, why don't you start the post-mortem for Fremantle? Because I kind of took the reins of the star for Melbourne. And also, Freo were your pet team for a lot of this season, and even before it. When we previewed teams at the start of this year, I just looked through their roster and thought, man, these guys look pretty good. They should be a finals team. And not only were they a finals team, they were a top four team for a good chunk of the season. How about from round four all the way to round 18? You can make a case for Justin Longmuir as coach of the year, although... Craig McRae is going to win any award like that. And, you know, I also really liked what Sam Mitchell did. They finished 15-6-1, ended up in fifth place. Had Carlton beaten Collingwood, they would have been in fourth. They finished at 117%. By percentage, they ended up sixth, ahead of Collingwood, but behind Brisbane and Richmond. And I just had a lot of fun watching these guys throughout the year. It seemed like every week... You discovered a new player or a new skill you didn't realize someone had. They made constant, smart adjustments. They played an exciting style. A lot of handballs. Pressuring teams almost like a full-court press on a basketball court. We need a full-court press counter for this podcast because you mentioned it so many times now, but the performance they put on at Cardinia Park. Who the hell comes into Cardinia Park from out of state and wins? Fremantle do. And I'm not just talking about that old qualifier. You know, when I was first getting into this sport and didn't know much of the terminology, much of the strategy, I identified pretty quickly that it's a lot more fun to watch contests for balls on the ground than it is to watch kick, mark, kick, mark, kick, mark. And in turn, the way Fremantle played is super exciting. And I just want to say a lot of people that kind of got on the flag mantle hype mid-season, you know, I wouldn't say I was picking them to be that good, but I thought they could have finished around 6th or 7th. They ended up exceeding that, and now things get interesting because they have a lot of pieces that are probably going to be coming in and out. You had guys that couldn't crack this lineup that would be in the 18 for any other team, guys like Bailey Banfield, who surprised us by signing on for an extension, but when he considered the list movement, maybe it makes more sense. Hopefully he does get that time in the 18. Because he delivered when he was named right away. Only kicked one of his 18 goals as the sub this year. And only was in the main 22, I think, 13 times this year. But like, before this season, I didn't know shit about James Aish. I didn't know shit about Alex Pierce. I didn't realize how vital Sam Switkowski was. He was a name that we knew because it was an easy name to remember, but didn't know a ton about his game. This just became a super fun team to watch each week. And I think it's really important to have a good team out West, considering how much the West loves football, and that you're going to end the week with one of those two teams at home almost every time, so they're going to get some TV time to themselves, so there better be something good on. Obviously, the Eagles are still the more popular club. I mean, you look at the attendance for the Eagles win over Essendon compared to some of Frio's home games, but the crowds at Frio home games were pretty solid throughout the year. They did get their largest crowd ever in the elimination final. I mean, of course they did, but hopefully that upper trend continues for them in home and away as well. I remember actually when we were being interviewed by Shannon Gill for Code, 
one of the things he latched onto, and he mentioned it in the article, was how you were talking about some of the guys who were then on the fringe for Frio, including Nathan O'Driscoll, who you loved from the beginning, as did I. So good along the wing. Another one of those guys that would have been 22 under 22 had he played more than just 12 games. And by the way, they were undefeated in the home and away when he was named in the 22. Not a coincidence. Damn good player. I would have loved to see him against Max Holmes more on the wing. Holmes getting hurt when the Cats played Frio was one of the key turning points in that game. And hopefully next season, things will line up for them to really face each other in full. Would love to see that as a double up. And also, I wonder how impactful he could have been in the rain because he was not in there between rounds 9 and 20, which meant those first two games where he was out, Fremantle's main weakness was exposed. Precipitation. Funny that a team called the Dockers that, you know, you associate with maritime stuff. So probably very good with salt water, but I guess fresh water falling from the sky doesn't sit so well with them. Interestingly, 36 point losses both of those weeks, first at the Suns and then at home against Collingwood. Their worst non-rain stretch was probably rounds 18 through 20. Not terrible against Sydney losing by 17, but the Swans were the better team the whole way. And I was following that game, I remember, as I was driving up to Oregon and impressed by the result and was eager to go back and listen to that one. Then they should have lost to Richmond and were outclassed at home against Melbourne after that. And remember, they were the team to stop the Ds. Yes, Stephen May went out in that game, but I think they could have still won with him in there. And their success on the road was one of the biggest things going for them this year. 6-4-1 overall on the road, 5-2-1 in Victoria, counting their first semifinal loss. Took a 41-point comeback in the first elimination final, and they were never that close in the first semifinal against Collingwood. Added on some points at the end to make it more respectable. They were really in like a six-goal hole for a lot of that game, so... Kind of went out with a whimper, but a fun season and one where they really established themselves as contenders. I forget who it was on Fox Footy last year that said that, you know, Fremantle would win a flag within the next however many years. I forget how long the window was as well, but I'm not sure if they anticipated this sort of list movement, but maybe add a couple more years onto that and see what the young side can offer O'Driscoll. Jai Amos, once he finally got back in, I'm still surprised he recovered from his kidney injury in time. Sam Sturt, Banfield again. Josh Tracy is just 20 as well. They're in a position to do some really good stuff moving forward, but they're kind of at a critical point with the upcoming movement this offseason. And they're also losing Mr. Docker, basically, through all this. David Mundy is retiring. He probably has more left in the tank, but this campaign was it for him. I've noticed a lot of the retirements are less, I'm just physically not good enough anymore, and more along the lines of, this is exhausting and taxing, and I'm just, like, mentally done and just kind of drained. I can understand that even more for the Western players with all the travel they have to do. Sir Swamp Thing calculated that Mundy is the first player to travel 900,000 kilometers by air over the course of his AFL career. That's close to 560,000 miles. If we're using measurements that are used by people that can actually win a Super Bowl. Ain't seen nobody win the Super Bowl using the metric system. Heck, we've even won a great cup with our measurements. And Canadian football does use yards, not meters. More proof that it's a superior system. I don't know. Base 10 makes a lot of sense. Who needs base 10 when you're based? You know, the mind is so complex when you're based. 
32 levels. Welcome to my world. I'm not sure if Australians know anything about Lil B. You know, the term based and the expression thank you based God are common enough that at some point, at least some people got familiar. Well, his curse worked again recently. That's all I'll say. I'm hoping he puts the curse on the Lions this week. Segway maybe a little too early? Yeah, we still have a little bit more to go over with the Dockers. You know, we already talked about the possible move for Luke Jackson, Rory Lobb heading to the Bulldogs. Acres to the Blues, Logue to somewhere north maybe. But it's going to definitely open up spots for that younger side of their list. We didn't even mention Neil Erasmus in all this, by the way. And defensively, it's not much of an issue for him. Brennan Cox impressed me a couple times late in the season when I hadn't been asking on him at times during the middle when they were struggling. Hayden Young definitely asserted himself. Alex Pierce remains a rock back there. I actually have some questions in the midfield, just the true center part of the ground. Outside of Andrew Brayshaw and Caleb Sarong, they contribute a whole lot as a pair But other than that, things are a little lacking with Nathan O'Driscoll and Michael Frederick being best as wingers. You've got the wings locked down for at least a bit for them. I think Frederick is more involved in the forward 50 anyway. Not stationed too high up. That didn't work well back in round two. And I said, Justin Longmere, don't do that again. And he didn't do that again. He should be stationed high up defensively. You know, he can really fuck with people that are trying to get out of their own goal square, their own back 50, but... Yeah, on an offensive side of things, you know, every now and then he'll be able to squeeze out back, pick up a loose ball and score. But it's not like you're asking someone with his frame to take a bunch of contested marks. You don't have a lot of that there in the forward 50 for Frio, especially with Lob and Logue going. Amos needs more muscle if he wants to do that. I think we're at the point where we can talk about positives and negatives. Benjamin, I'm going to let you go first. Who is your positive contributor this year for the Dockers? And I ask you because I have like seven or eight I could choose. I have one that's obvious, but I have a bunch of others that I really like too. It's hard to narrow it down for sure. I want to highlight Will Brody because we haven't yet. At the start of the year, he was a huge clearance getter from the center especially and did a lot of that alongside David Mundy. But when Andrew Brayshaw and Caleb Sarong really started to link up together, Brody transitioned to more of a damn strong tackler. And for this being his first year, for the Dockers, having come over from Gold Coast. He's looking like a steal for them in multiple ways with how quickly he was able to adjust to different roles within the midfield. So good on them for bringing him in and good on him for showcasing his versatility. I'm obviously going with Nathan O'Driscoll here. I've talked about him enough, though, so I'm just going to list off some of my honorable mentions instead. Griffin Logue, who at the start of the year... I didn't even think belonged in the lineup. He proved me wrong very quickly. Lockie Schultz or Schultz? There are a couple of broadcasters who either pronounce his last name like it has a short I or maybe even a schwa. And he's still on the rookie list. James H. I love when he ended up looking like a pirate when the front of his jumper was torn. He's one of those better corridor movers that I was thinking of when I talked about that group and has a pretty good finishing touch as well. Alex Pierce, Hayden Young, he was hurt for a lot of the year, but Heath Chapman, Brennan Cox. Cox in the air is strong. Chapman has done better in that regard as well, but just a good body to have there in the back line. And you could say is single-handedly responsible for getting them to fifth as opposed to sixth, thinking all the way back to the opening game of the season at the Adelaide Oval. The one you think about in the tub. 
I actually haven't taken a bath in a very, very long time. I'm also going to jump right in and go first with my negative here, mostly because if you went first and you went with who I had in mind, I really wouldn't have any left because there are so few surprising negatives for this team. Ah, making my job harder. I love it. I'm going to go with Brandon Walker. Yes, he started the year nicely, but he cooled off after that. I'm not going to go with Liam Henry because I didn't think he was that good in the first place. Yeah, Henry's another one of those where I could understand what the club was trying to do with him, but nothing really stuck in that regard. Here's another one that you didn't mention in your honorable mentions, though, that I want to circle back to. Jordan Clark, not a spot for him in a lot of ways at Geelong, but good at starting wing play. And just kind of being that guy to link the back 50 to the midfield. You know, you have the key defender kick it out to him, and then he can run into the midfield. I do think in kind of the what-ifs, you know, can you imagine if you had him running from the back 50 up to around midfield, and then you handball it off to Brad Close. And I just, knew you were going to say that. And he just runs the rest of the way. And yeah, that would have been super fun. Wouldn't have worked long term, not sure. But having those solid marks and passage beginners back there, Luke Ryan, we didn't even mention, Graydon's starting play from fullback, and then you give to Clark. He's kind of that slingshot guy for them. When it comes to negatives for me, it's mostly that I didn't realize the extent of Matt Taberner's glass bones and paper skin. I was born with glass bones and paper skin. I noticed him more in his absence than I did when he was on the oval. In the first semifinal, Rory Lobb was the tall target of the forward 50. Having Taberner there, I tweeted this out. Having Taberner in there wouldn't have changed the result in the game in all likelihood, but it at least would have taken some heat off Lobb and made it less likely that he was constantly double teamed in the air. They need that big body there, in the forward 50. Can a 29-year-old Tabater still be that body? When I looked up Matt Tabater, by the way, to figure out his age, I also saw that there is a Dr. Matt Tabater in the UK who is a registered strength and conditioning coach with distinction. Maybe Dr. Matt Tabater should help out Matt Taberner. Seems like a logical pairing there. On that note, I think it's time to move on towards previewing these actual games. There are only two of them, and there isn't much to talk about lineup-wise because we shouldn't see that many changes, especially in the latter. In the forward, we thought we were going to have one, and I guess we could start with that because that's the big news item that we didn't go over yet because it ties to this first preliminary final, which is Geelong and Brisbane. That'll bounce at 7.50 p.m. local time on Friday night in Melbourne at the G. So 5.50 a.m. Eastern, 2.50 Pacific for American viewers. And this will be on Fox Sports 2. Yeah, we didn't understand the impact Barry could have as a tagger back in round four when the Cats beat the Lions by 10 at Cardinia Park. And it should have been a lot more, but they were inaccurate, as has been their issue for some of their lesser performances this season, even in wins. But you were really adamant that Barry's gouge was really intentional this past week, and every time I view it, I question that more and more. I see him going for the jumper more and more each time, and I can understand where he got off, because with what we're going for, and what we mentioned from round three this season with Patty Ryder's Tribunal, this isn't Hammurabi's Babylon. Intent should be mattering more. I will say the counter-arguments given in defense of Barry were pretty sound, 
They were basically saying he couldn't see what he was grabbing. He wasn't going for his eye. He was just kind of trying to grab him to push him off. And also, it looks like Oliver was the first to grab him when they got him tangled again. It was by the neck. Oh, no, Oliver definitely got him first. Just like Greedo shot first? I don't know. I'm not nerdy enough about Star Wars to have a debate about that. And I'm not a huge Star Wars buff either. I think it should have been a fine in the first place, and that wouldn't have been contested. I think it should have been a suspension, but the arguments given at the tribunal were solid. Whereas when Patrick Cripps got his suspension reversed, it was because the arguments made against him were so shitty. Not that what he did wasn't suspension worthy. I am glad Kalamachi got back and had an impact in that semifinal. He scored that goal right before the halftime siren that started Brisbane on their way. Gave him that momentum going into the break. And that was at a time when we really thought Melbourne had a chance to break free. We do expect some changes from Brisbane, though, because Oscar McInerney will be out of concussion protocol, so expect him to replace Darcy Fort. And though Tom Fullerton did do well when he was called in late, he's a former basketballer. That's the second time we've mentioned that in this episode, one from each of us. Even though Fullerton did more than what he was asked to do, probably, Joe Danaher will likely be back after the birth of his first child because his wife and his baby girl seem to be doing well. Again, this is sort of a no news is good news case. I bet the first Disney movie they'll show her is Frozen. This is Benjamin from the future, also known in the Americans watching the footy multiverse as editing Benjamin. And before you hear Ethan talk about his thoughts on what Jalog should do in regard to their list, note that this episode was recorded before any sort of list announcement. So, um, here we go. Carry on, Ethan. I think you gotta get Brandon Parfit in there, but I don't know who you take out. I hope it's not Brian Myers. I would understand if it was. For some reason, Josh Gavilich thinks... There's an off chance John Segler could take Reese Stanley's spot, but that would make zero sense. The tougher things are, you know, could you get Sam Manigola in there? Could you get Jake Kolajashny back in? My guess is Kolajashny or maybe Parfit or maybe Myers is the medical sub. The medical sub against Collingwood was Mark O'Connor, and he has to be in the lineup because you have to have a tag on Lockie Neal. And he's done it exceptionally well multiple times. Now that I say that, I'm worried that Chris Scott won't see it that way. And I really hope he sees it the way I do. He's made the right decisions a lot of the time this year, as opposed to last year when we questioned him so much. I questioned him early on against Hollywood, and then Gary Rowan told me to shut the fuck up. You moron. I had a shut the fuck up, you moron moment myself when I said... I didn't see how the Brisbane-Melbourne semifinal was going to look that different from the home and away game after quarter time. So I guess we're even on that front. Lockie Neal actually had 30 disposals in that round of four game, but I remember they weren't nearly as impactful. And he didn't gain nearly as much ground as he normally does. 11 clearances, but only 251 meters. A couple other things about that game worth noting. Joel Selwood was managed that night. Tom Stewart was laid out with illness, although the Cats did benefit some from not having to face Oscar McInerney, who was suspended for that game. That was back when he struck Tristan Jerry in that blowout against North. One of the most nonsensical decisions by any AFL player in-game this season. 
O'Connor himself in round four, which was his first action of the season, racked up 22 disposals, six tackles, four clearances. So good tagging work, which we've come to expect from him. And speaking of Selwood, he is going to draw even with Michael Tuck for the all-time finals played record at 39. He's doing it in a lot fewer games. Tuck did it in 426. Selwood, who, by the way, will finally be a father in the coming months. It's been a struggle about which he's been open. We'll be doing it in game 354. I think there's one area where Tuck has Selwood beat, though, because he has everyone beaten there. Seven premiership medals. Caps are favored by 22 and a half, which is way too high. Yes, I'm worried. Now that the Lions have broken through the glass ceiling, they've beaten the D's, they've won at the MCG. And it honestly was overblown considering the kind of games they had played there. I remember reading a comment on some Reddit post, I can't find it now, but a Lions fan was talking about how the MCG curse was overblown considering who they played against in those times there. Hawthorne hadn't been great during a lot of that stretch, but they mostly got them in Tasmania, as they did this year in a terribly umpired affair. They faced Richmond there during their premiership run multiple times. Most of the time, they just weren't good at all. But if you're that obsessed with the curse, it's over. I just think the way they're playing, I would set this line at maybe 10, 11. I think there is a world in which the Cats absolutely blow them off the field, in which the Lions just, they've used everything in the tank and they got nothing left. I also think there's a world in which the Lions win this game by like 40 points. I'd be willing to bet in maybe the two and a half goal range for Geelong, but not more. It's another area where it's like the median of the outcomes you expect. Not the mean. The mean can be thrown way out of proportion by outliers. I don't feel terrible about the possibility of the Cats being in a close game here. I would never feel great about it, but I feel better about it than I would have against Collingwood, and that ended up going pretty well. Brisbane proved themselves in a close game a couple weeks ago, though. But can they do it in a game where they get a run of a few goals? Can they stop Geelong from doing that altogether? I was waiting for you to interject about something about a cold, rainy night at Stoke. By the way, it looks like we could have some rain during this game. It's been a pretty rainy week in Melbourne altogether, though most likely those showers are going to be out of the way before the game. It's not impossible that it gets involved. I don't think bad conditions have much of a bearing on either of these teams, especially considering the Lions' familiarity with superhuman conditions. Last year, the Cats were really bad in rain. They haven't had too many bad weather games this year. And the ones they have, it's hardly been an issue. All right, that was a great conversation and all. I agreed with a lot of the points that Ethan brought up. Parfit makes for a sensible inclusion. You gotta have O'Connor in there to tag Neil, right? Nope, Chris Scott has not made any changes from last round. Mark O'Connor was the sub. He is not included in the main 22. Hopefully he's the sub again. Or hopefully he pulls some late changes to actually get that tag on Neil. Otherwise, I don't know who would go to him. And that's vital in any game against Brisbane. I don't know why Scott wouldn't do it when it worked so well in round four. The Lions are going with the expected changes. Fort and Fullerton out, Danaher and McInerney in. The line surprisingly hasn't changed despite Geelong not naming a tagger. 
Maybe the odds makers know something we don't. Or maybe things just haven't changed that much in their eyes. But Ethan and I are both liking the Lions a lot more than we were before this. Safe to say Ethan was displeased by the news, and I was just confused. On we go now to our preview of the second preliminary final, and off I go to keep editing. So rain in Victoria, and there's some rain in New South Wales in the days where we're recording this, but by Friday it'll clear out, and it'll be no problem Saturday afternoon at the SCG when the Swans host Collingwood for the second time in four weeks. That'll be a 4.45 p.m. local start at Twilight prelim, to give everyone basically a full week leading up to the grand final, and hopefully to capture a good sunset, because usually the sunsets at the SCG are pretty cool. Footy ground sunsets in general have been really solid this year. So for Americans, it'll be 2.45 a.m. Eastern on Saturday the 17th when the second preliminary final gets underway. For us here on the West Coast, it'll still be Friday, 11.45 p.m. for the bounce there, and this will be on FS1, as will the grand final per all reports. Yeah, that round 22 game, the Swans won by 27. What was amazing was even though they had a four-goal lead for a lot of the game, because of the way Collingwood had played for a while, you never counted them out until like the last three, four minutes. It was like, oh, they could still make a push. Here they come. It's going to happen. Here they come. And it didn't that time, but it happened the very next week against Carlton. So it's still there. Important to note, Jordan DeGoey wasn't out with illness that game. And he's been awesome in the first two weeks of finals. Player of the finals up to this point, with ease. Shit, it could realistically end up being a situation where Collingwood lose, they don't make the grand final, they go one and two in finals, and he could still end up being the best player out of all the finals. Which is insane. Though you'd expect someone who's played the grand final to win the Gary Ayers medal because he piles up the votes. Of course, but if we're just looking like proportionally compared to number of games played, Dugowie could have that even in a situation where Collingwood lose. And I do think they're going to lose, and the odds makers think they're going to lose. They are 17 and a half point underdogs. I would probably put it a little bit lower than that. Probably put that more in the two goal range. But I think the Swans are going to have to play a totally different game than the one they did two weeks ago against Melbourne. Against the Demons, you may remember, the Swans put on crazy pressure everywhere, and while it worked very well, and while I don't expect fatigue to be an issue when they've had this bye week, it did leave them susceptible to some breakdowns, and we know that Collingwood are really good at picking apart mistakes. The Swans have been pretty damn good at rebounding from mistakes themselves, though, and it's so often different pieces for Sydney, or there's been stretches throughout the year where it's three, four weeks of one player that we've been noticing getting consistent results at something that it's been someone else in a different part of the oval. In the back part of the year, it's been Robbie Fox doing everything defensively. He's still on the rookie list, but he's signed on again. Collingwood's handball first strategy, though, does mean they can stay away from the McCartans a lot of the time. And that's something we both pinpointed as something that's essential to neutralizing the Swans' defensive strengths. Sure, the Swans can have plenty of players who can run with you defensively. Nick Blakey can run anywhere. Justin McInerney's been playing more halfback. But the McCartans are the ones that continue to stand out. And when Melbourne had their success against the Swans, it was because they stayed away from the McCartans. Now, here's something that I didn't really think about the first time these teams matched up. 
that I want to get into here. If this is a close game, and I hope at this point, well, regardless of what happens with Geelong, I hope it's a close game. You hope you're hoping it's a close game for a specific reason. Either I'll be hoping for a close game because I want to be entertained or because I hope both teams beat the hell out of each other and the Cats get a completely demolished opponent the next week. Hey, where are you going? Get back here and kill each other! Collingwood make all those little plays. We saw him from Taylor Adams, who obviously won't be in this game. Trent Bianco didn't look bad at all replacing him. We said this past week he fit into their scheme. That's what's necessary for Collingwood. There's a good chance neither team makes any lineup changes here, but those sorts of little plays, whether it's by Adams or, you know, it was John Noble in the wins over Carlton, you can find a different player just about every week that did stuff like that. Noble did a good job this past week as well defensively, again, when he isn't locked on to someone. When he's that roving middle third of the oval guy, he thrives. Here's the thing, though. The Swans have a guy that can make those gritty one percenter type plays. Actually, they have multiple. James Robottom does it all game, and it seems like in just about every big win, Dane Rampey does it in the fourth quarter. So if you're looking for a sign that tells you, you know, in a close game, this team's going to win, it's someone for Collingwood making a play like that, or for Sydney specifically look to Rampey. And maybe there's a chance that Bianco can't get exposed going through the middle with the numbers and speed that Sydney have. Can the combination of Chad Warner, Ali Florent, who's been propelling play a lot this year since being sent further back, Justin McInerney starting things back as well, Errol Golden again being one of the most composed players for his age anywhere, there's a chance that it can get too much for the Pies in the middle. But I think there's such an interesting matchup in the forward 50 because of the lack of a clear, consistent matchup for at least one of the McCartans. They both have at least half a foot on Jamie Elliott. You got to watch Ash Johnson. I guess Darcy Cameron by default would be the other guy you have that you have a one-on-one against or Mason Cox when he gets in there. But those one-on-ones likely won't be targeted in the first place. Heck, if I'm Collingwood, I look at having Mason just take on a role of distracting the McCartans as much as possible. I was about to say the exact same thing. And Johnson maybe as well because he had his worst game yet this past week, which is not a huge knock on him. It's that he's been that impressive most of the time. It was hardly a bad game from him. It was just less amazing. I think you're still a little bit higher on him than a lot of people were last week. In the moment, a lot of Collingwood fans were picking on him on social media. I wasn't looking too much into it in part because they were winning comfortably. I'm obviously biased here and really haven't come to a conclusion, but... I can say I've talked myself more and more into the Lions winning and us getting a Lions-Swans grand final. I really hope I'm wrong. If the Cats do win, I don't know who I'd rather face. On one hand, you know, if you've beaten a team twice, you're probably better than them. But when you're squeaking out close games over them, that's less likely. And we also had the weirdness of Melbourne not crushing Brisbane for a third time. The Swans have beaten the Cats each of the last two years, but those are both at the SCG, and they're the team I most want to take down. In my time as a dedicated Cats fan, they're the only team I haven't experienced a win over. I know I'm supposed to hate the Swans as an Eagles fan. I can't find it in me right now. I like the way they play. I just don't like the collective. You just had the frustration with them. I think that's mostly it. No wallet for anybody to give back now, though. But... I want to ask you, Benjamin, 
which teams will we be eulogizing next week and which teams will be moving on to the grand final. Right now, I'm leaning toward thinking that we'll be eulogizing the Lions and I guess Collingwood, though I could be sold in any direction. We don't know if there's going to be any changes that change our mind, that shift our mind, shift the odds. There's a lot still up in the air still, even with this preview coming Australian Wednesday night. There are four possible grand final matchups, and I wouldn't be surprised with any of them. And I'm hoping that we don't get a jumper clash in this one because Geelong and Collingwood don't look nearly as good as the other three. Sydney Collingwood is one of the best looking matchups, period, by the way. I'm starting to get nervous the more I think about these things. I'm ready to just get this game over with one way or the other. I hate the anticipation. Let's just do it already. And with that, let's just end this episode because we went on for a while with all the news items. We went pretty in-depth with the postmortems because we've been talking so much about both of the teams, especially Fremantle. And I know you all just want to enjoy the footy this week as well. And I don't blame anyone one bit for that. By the time we record, we might have even had Brownlow night already. Again, you can find us on Twitter at Americans Footy. I am personally at BenjaminHK01. I am at Castle Media. Brian, who is still under the bed and has just been minding his own business instead of making a lot of noise, which I really appreciate. I think he tired himself out playing with his favorite mouse toy that's on its last legs. He's on Instagram at CatNamedBrian. Thanks likely again for listening. We'll get this out to you as soon as I finish editing, and I'll finish editing this right after I crush up some anti-inflammatories. <laughs>